out there, everyone. I want to thank you for joining me for episode 40, another milestone episode of The Mark Geist Show. So I still have a ton to talk about. Really, the Trump presidency has been a treasure trove of things to discuss and analyze for both good and bad reasons. But the first thing I wanted to get into today, and I'm not going to go through really a summary because I have quite a few things to hit. I'm not sure how many of them I'm going to hit, so I don't want to promise anything that I don't end up delivering in this episode. But first, if you've been following the show, um, if you've been listening, whether you're going on the website or accessing it by some other means, please go out and subscribe on iTunes or your podcast aggregating app, whatever. Uh, I would love to see the subscriber numbers continue to tick up as they have. Uh, I appreciate everybody listening and you know, I want to have a have a good idea of how much people are listening. And the more that people listen, probably the more that I'm able to put out these episodes. So thank you very much for your support. First, in terms of topics to discuss, I want to talk about Trump's comments in his interview with Bill O'Reilly on Super Bowl Sunday. And this aroused a lot of controversy, more because of him defending Vladimir Putin. I'm going to play the clip real quickly. But basically, Bill O'Reilly's asking him about his relationship with Putin. Does he respect Putin? And then he responds by impugning America. And it's and Bill O'Reilly in the middle impugns Russia. And then Trump basically says, well, we're not perfect either. So here's the clip. Do you respect Putin? I do respect him. Do you? Why? Well, I respect a lot of people, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get along with him. He's a leader of his country. Uh, I say it's better to get along with Russia than not. And if Russia helps us in the fight against ISIS, which is a major fight, and Islamic terrorism all over the world, right. major fight, that's a good thing. Will I get along with him? I have no idea. He's a killer, I though. Won't. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. You got a lot of killers. Why, well, you think our country's so innocent? You think our country's so innocent? I don't know of any government leaders that are killers in America. Well, take a look at what we've done, too. We've made a lot of mistakes. I've been against the war in Iraq from the beginning. Yeah, mistakes are different then. A lot of mistakes, okay, but a lot of people were killed. So a lot All of killers right. around, believe me. So these quotes had the interesting effect of angering both a lot of people on the left, both the progressive faction on the left and the neoconservative faction on the right. And this is something that only Donald Trump does as well as he does. Nobody else angers those two groups as much as Trump does, though Trump has started to move in that in that neoconservative direction. But basically calling into question any of America's actions overseas certainly angers the neocons. It always does. And it and it did whenever Obama made any sort of comments questioning America's actions overseas. That angers the neocons because they believe that America is the white knight that's coming to save these other countries from otherwise certain doom. That's what they believe. And the progressives and a lot of these never-Trumpers on the left, basically what they believe is whatever Trump says is wrong. And Trump's in bed with Putin, so anything he says that is at all conciliatory toward Putin, anything that's not straight up antagonizing Putin and Russia can be construed as Trump is a Putin puppet. He's he's a puppet of the Kremlin and he's just doing what they're telling him to do and he doesn't think for himself and all he does is tow the Russian party line. So you have these two groups who typically are at odds with one another and have been at odds with one another in the past, but they're both angered at this for differing but similar reasons. And 
the progressives especially, and I probably spend more time criticizing the progressives on this show than I do the neocons, even though I have just as many issues with the neocons. But at least the neocons are consistent in terms of foreign policy. They've been for interventionist foreign policy all along. So I completely disagree with them, but at least they are consistent. I say the same thing about progressives on domestic policy. Typically, they're fairly consistent. So even though I disagree with them on basically every every issue that they raise, I at least, I at least can respect that they've been consistent on those issues. So at least the neocons, I've been able to demonize them all along for being overly interventionist and for wanting to get involved in all these foreign wars and thinking that aggression is the answer to solve our problems and that there isn't blowback to the United States as a result of our foreign policy. But now the progressives, just because Trump says something, now all of a sudden, whatever Trump speaks out against, that thing becomes sacred. So the the progressive idea of America, if you look at What's being pushed, I think of a book like A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn as being a great example. Um, That's one of the definitely progressive, favored books in the progressive left that I have read so I can speak on. But their idea of the United States is it's it's a country founded for white men, basically, and all other minority groups have fallen by the wayside as this country was formed and continue to benefit white men at the expense of other groups and especially rich white men. So everybody else, women were left behind, minorities of all stripes were left behind. And it's been a constant battle for those groups to get up to par with white men. And as a result, we've had disastrous foreign policy and and especially talking about what we've done in the Middle East, a people's history of the United States believes that we have done far more harm than good in other countries. And the Middle East is the prime example of that. But the, the Vietnam War also is demonized for that reason. And I tend to agree with the progressives on that issue, at least. I don't really agree with, with most of what Zinn says in that book. But I do generally agree with foreign policy. I, mean, I don't think necessarily the United States has been wrong every single step of the way in every single conflict. But I think generally especially in the last 100 years, 125 years, as we've gotten more and more involved in conflicts all around the world, we've probably done more harm than good. So I will agree with them on that issue. But what frustrates me so much is how inconsistent the Democrats as a whole are. I actually have to give a little bit of credit to the progressives because I think they've been less hypocritical than the mainstream Democrats have been on this. Because first of all, The mainstream Democrats as a whole supported Hillary Clinton and Hillary Clinton has supported, you know, all of the, all of these foreign policy misadventures that I've discussed in prior podcasts that I'm pointing to when I talked to earlier about the United States recently having done more harm than good around the rest of the world. She has supported virtually all of that foreign policy. And these are the same people who, no matter what Barack Obama did, they would not criticize it. They would not criticize his foreign policy. I do have to give some credit to an outlet that I love to make fun of, which is the Young Turks. And they oftentimes do flip-flop back and forth. But they were one of the outlets on the left consistently criticizing Obama's drone policy and calling out other members of the Democratic Party for their, their hypocrisy. So I have to give some credit there, even though I love to take any opportunity to make fun of them. And they've been kind of on a roll 
recently, but they were one of the outlets that was good on this. Another guy that's consistent is Glenn Greenwald. I guess you could call him a progressive, but he's been consistent through the Bush years, through the Obama years, up until now about being an advocate for civil liberties and for non-interventionist foreign policy. And he's been reporting on that just as harshly during the Obama years as he was during the Bush years. So he certainly isn't a partisan shill. I, I don't agree with Greenwald much in terms of economics, but I respect his consistency. Uh, one clip I want to play, this is this is from MSNBC, and her name is Crystal Ball, and she's not super well-known, but this is probably the best audio clip I could find of this attitude. I also have another related sort of point. So there was a, a woman being interviewed at one of these anti-Trump rallies, and she was asked a question. It was It was after the immigration executive order was passed, and the interviewer asks, well, what did you think about when President Obama banned people from Iran back in 2011? Now, I'm not going to get into answering that question. It's more the response or analyzing that question. It's more the response that's important. But she said, no, I like President Obama. She kind of had a surprised look on her face like, well, of course I supported that because I like President Obama and I don't like I don't like Donald Trump. So I'm going to trust in what Obama did, and I'm not going to trust what Donald Trump does. But it seems like such an arbitrary way to go about things when all of our leaders are, are flawed, and they're always going to be flawed. And you have to evaluate them on their actual actions. You can't just make a determination about somebody early on. So with Barack Obama, a lot of people always saw the Obama that we saw in the campaign back in 2008 and the promises that he made there. And that was the depiction that a lot of people had in their minds of Obama. And that's what they carried through his entire presidency. They actually thought that that's the person that he was, that those were the things that he believed rather than analyzing what he actually did in power. And actions speak a lot louder than words. So they took the words at face value that he had talked about and they, they decided, okay, I like Obama. So I'm going to basically say whatever I need to say in order to be proven right on that. So I'm going to gloss over the things that he does wrong, and I'm going to shout from the rooftops all the things that he does right. And a lot of people are doing that now with Donald Trump. A lot of people that supported Donald Trump are not criticizing him for the things that he needs to be criticized for. And they're shouting from the rooftops all the things that, you know, it's debatable, but the things that have been successful or the things that they think most people would think are good policy. So the same thing's happening now, and it happens with every president. But right now, the people jumping out and, and wanting to complain about Donald Trump saying that America isn't perfect are criticizing Trump for actions that he's doing now that were done all throughout the Obama presidency and back to the, to the Bush presidency and in most instances back to the Clinton presidency, though the targets may be slightly different. I do want to play a clip also from Anna Kasparian of the Young Turks because she's talking about Trump's drone strike in Yemen and not pointing back to Obama's drone strikes. I did say before the Young Turks were good on this issue all along, so I'm not necessarily trying to target Anna, but the way that she says this, like she says it like it's in isolation. Oh, like Trump went out and he and he killed 30 civilians or whatever it was in Yemen and that this was some sort of new policy that he implemented. Here's that clip real quick before I play that crystal ball clip. Look, I just think it's a bizarre statement coming from Trump after he 
basically gave a raid, a green light in Yemen, and it killed so many innocent civilians, right? Mm -hmm. And so is that a reflection on his own decision? And by the way, that was within the first two weeks of his presidency. Yeah. So if he managed to screw a raid up that badly within the first two weeks, in addition to all of his anti-Muslim rhetoric, I mean, what kind of damage is he going to do in Muslim countries moving forward with drone strikes or raids? And how is that going to make our country safer? Right? So that's right. another Same. thing to take into consideration. Is he being a leader by, by provoking hostility and anger toward the United States by killing? Well, all of that confirms Donald Trump's position that America has killers too, that we're not perfect either. That Yemen raid that she's referencing, that's a continuation of Obama's foreign policy. That's when we got involved in Yemen. Now, I'm not excusing Donald Trump. I tweeted out right when I heard about that. Looks like Trump is continuing the failed Obama-Bush foreign policy. And I think that's true. Every indication thus far since he's gotten into office is that he's continuing a lot of the mistakes that happened under those regimes. And I, I was critical of him in prior episodes. If you want to listen to what I've talked about with him in Iran, and I'm going to talk about Iran later in this episode, something I have to get to. Um, so it looks like he's leading us down that path. But it's a continuation of what we've done for years. I mean, for decades, really. And that confirms what he was saying, that we need to look at ourselves. We are not innocent either. We have killers too. We've, we've probably brought on much more destruction in the Middle East and in Eurasia as a whole than Russia has, than Vladimir Putin has. That's the point that Trump is making, and he's right. Anna, all you have to do is look back at what the Young Turks was saying about the Obama drone program, drone strike program, and how destructive it was. And you came out in support of, of uh, Jeremy Scahill calling it mass murder. And I agree with those positions. I'm very critical of the drone program and, and what Obama did, expanding that program, killing hundreds of civilians, and continuing to get us more embroiled in other conflicts. It's made it even easier for the U.S. military to get involved in other conflicts because now boots don't have to be on the ground. And it's cheaper, easier to get involved overall due to all those factors. So I've been very critical of the drone program. But that's the point that Trump is making is that our foreign policy has been pretty destructive overall. And if you go back and just watch what you have been reporting on the Young Turks, then you'll see that's the point he's making. So I don't know how you can come out and be critical of him unless the, the only people that can come out and be critical of him, I think, and be consistent are the neocons. And I think they're wrong, but at least, like I said before, they've been consistent all along and they can say, say well, if you look at what I said before on this issue, the war in Iraq has been successful or the war in Afghanistan has been successful or American intervention around the world has been successful. And that's generally what they'll say. And what we need is more American intervention. They can at least be consistent when they say that Trump is wrong, that, that the U.S. has always been a force for good in terms of foreign policy and, and in the Middle East specifically. But I don't think Trump is wrong on this statement. I do want to go back to that crystal ball clip that I referenced. So I'm going to play that here with commentary after. There is something about this drone debate, though, that is driving me nuts. And that is the charge, mostly by Republicans, that if you feel any different about the drone program under President Obama than you would have under George W. Bush, you are an utter hopeless hypocrite. Look, 
I voted for President Obama because I trust his values and his judgment. And I believe that he's a fundamentally responsible actor. President Obama would have exercised better judgment, and he has exercised better judgment. Do you feel the same about George W. Bush having the nuclear codes as you do about President Obama? Call me a hypocrite, but I sure don't. Well, I'm going to call you a hypocrite because that is completely what you are. It, imagine if that's how you conducted your everyday life. So every time you interacted with a person, all that you thought of were your first impressions. Oh, I like, I like this person because that was my first impression of them when I met them. I met them, so I'm going to 100, or I, I met them and I like them, so I'm going to 100% accept everything that they say. Imagine how, how much you can pray victim to sociopaths who are very convincing upon first meeting them, but it turns out that they have no conscience whatsoever. And it turns out that that's a facade that they put on to manipulate people to do what they want you to do. There are a lot of people like that out in the world. And if that's how you operate in your everyday life, you are going to continually be a victim the rest of your life. You're going to continually be a target for people like that because you are gullible and you are hypocritical. We continually adjust our, um, our impressions of people, our opinions of people based on their actions. And that's what you have to do when looking at politicians as well. It's no different than what we do in our everyday lives. You know, you may you may start a relationship with somebody, you know, you may you may start dating somebody and everything goes smoothly, goes perfectly for the first couple months. And then things may start going off the rails. Maybe you start learning more about them. They start to do these things that give you an indication that, hey, maybe this person isn't exactly who I thought they were. Are you going to just default to your original uh, to your original impression of them? Are you going to just say, well, I like this person a whole lot. I've had a lot of fun with this person. So I'm going to 100% unequivocally support and trust what they have to say. Of course not. You're going to continually adjust those impressions and, and those opinions of that person. And probably you'll eventually break off that relationship. And if you don't do that, then you are destined to be in bad relationships and be unhappy for the rest of your life. And it's the same thing with politicians. You cannot just take support for a candidate and because you want to be proven right by that support then you have to just be a shill for everything that they come out for and that's what crystal ball here is advocating and yes that's her real name crystal ball so people like her are probably the ones that i'm i'm most angry at i'm not really angry at the young turks though i do think that the way that they're framing these trump comments is incorrect but these hypocrites who didn't support things under Bush because they didn't like Bush. They didn't like him all along. And then all of a sudden supported those same things under Barack Obama. Now I've gone back to not supporting them under Trump and then are going to jump on Trump because he makes some comments that can be construed as being controversial, despite them having held the position both in the past and presently that what the Ameri that, that what the United States is doing overseas is detrimental and is killing people. Somehow they're able to hold that position and huge criticism, like what Donald Trump is saying here, is so far from the truth. How could he possibly dare to utter a bad word about the United States foreign policy? So I don't know how they hold these views in their mind at the same time, but it's very frustrating to watch and it's frustrating to try to reason with these people. So I don't want to be too far down that rabbit hole because there are other things I want to cover, but that was the first thing I wanted to hit because those might have been Trump's most controversial comments over the weekend, probably, you know, since my last show. Well, I did it after the Super Bowl, but that was something I had in the queue that I would have liked to have discussed but didn't want to push the show too long. 
So another important topic I wanted to discuss was uh, were comments out of Iran. So Ayatollah Khomeini came out and said it was uh, it was two uh, commanders of his army air force of Iran's army air force, and he said that Trump exposed the quote real face end quote of American moral corruption. Here are a couple quotes from what he said. Then I'll jump into my analysis. He said, quote, we are thankful to Trump to making our life easy as he showed the real face of America, end quote. Here's another one, quote, during his election campaign and after that, he confirmed what we have been saying for more than 30 years about the political, economic, moral, and social corruption in the U.S. ruling system, end quote. And then here's my final one. The new U.S. president says Iran should thank Obama. Why? Should we thank him for creating ISIS? The ongoing wars in Iraq and Syria, or the blatant support for the 2009 sedition in Iran? He was the president who imposed paralyzing sanctions on the Iranian nation, of course. He did advise what he desired. No army can even, no army can ever paralyze the Iranian nation. Sorry, my handwriting was kind of, <laughs> was kind of messy on that last sentence there. But there's a lot there. So the first quote, and I haven't really seen how people are reacting to this because I can see how you can you can interpret this in different ways. But he talked about that they're thankful to Trump for making our life easy and showing the showing the real face of the United States. And then he references the political, economic, moral, and social corruption in the U.S. for the last 30 years. So is it that Trump is just an embodiment of what's been happening over the last 30 years, there, there are some ways you can, different ways you can go in interpreting those quotes. But these are pretty hostile remarks coming out of Iran. And I was very critical of Trump's approach to this situation. But I do think that it's important to look at, at what past presidents have done as well in creating this mess in Iran. And I know that for whatever reason, the Republican strategy this year was, or in this election cycle, was to frame Obama as being weak on Iran. That was how they framed it, but they did impose sanctions. He says in this quote that, why should we thank Obama? He didn't do anything to help us. He was antagonistic toward us. And that has been the U.S.'s policy toward Iran for a long time. This is a country that, that hasn't invaded anybody in approximately 300 years country that largely keeps to itself. It is the regional power in the Middle East. So they do exert influence on in other countries. But in the grand scheme of things, they do not pose a threat to to me or you or to our liberties here. And this is not something that we should be getting involved in. We should not be antagonizing them. Not that they would attack the U.S. mainland or anything. That's so far from so far from the realm of possibility that it's not even worth discussing. But what could happen is tempers flare somewhere overseas because Iran does have a presence around the Middle East and we get involved in a conflict over there. That's what I ultimately think probably will happen and what I just really want to see avoided because Iran has a lot of pride. and They're powerful, like I said. Uh, they have a, a strong military relative to the rest of the world. Nobody spends nearly as much as the United States does on its military, but we also are spread far thinner than any of these other countries are. And that is not a conflict that you want to get involved in. I don't want to get involved in any war, but Iran would be a, a very scary foe. So I don't think that antagonizing them is the right move. And we have so many of our own problems here at home to deal with. I don't want to see any more of these comments. 
but it's an, it's an important update to what I talked about before I talked about the back and forth and you know how how sanctions came in response to Iran's comments and Iran's comments came in response to Donald Trump's comments putting Iran on notice after a ballistics uh, ballistic missile test so this is another another response in that long line of responses they're making it clear that they're not a country that's going to be pushed around and they'll do what they need to do to defend their own interests and that's not what I want to hear. You know, I don't want to hear about that from a U.S. perspective because I don't trust in our leadership now to get us out of any sort of conflict with Iran and to avoid conflict because it seems like Trump has been taken down this neoconservative path and he's let a lot of the neocons around him start to take the reins because we've also seen antagonism toward China as well, which I've discussed on this podcast. Neither of those are ideal whatsoever. Both of those are, are things we need to monitor and ultimately, foreign policy is the biggest threat to our liberties. And wars overseas are the biggest threats to our liberties. So ultimately, that's most important. That's what I want to cover first and foremost on this show. I love talking about economics. I love talking about domestic policy. I, I love talking about what's going on here and how can we work toward liberty here at home. But there's no better excuse for governments to take more of our liberty, to take more of our freedoms than expansive wars overseas, than large wars overseas. And that's exactly what seems to be being threatened in the South, South China Sea and with Iran in the Middle East and all these other little wars that we're involved in. So we need to keep following this, need to keep speaking out against Donald Trump on this. I still think we're at the crossroads position where he still could go one way or the other. We haven't gone too far down either path. So he could reverse course and decide, okay, Iran's not worth dealing with. Okay, I'm not going to antagonize China. Well, let's deal with our own problems. Let's deal with how do we become more prosperous here at home. Let's deal with that first and not get embroiled in these overseas conflicts. That's what I hope happens, but I'm not sure if it's going to. But we'll keep you updated on this show. Uh, another couple things I wanted to get to, the... Betsy DeVos confirmation. So Mike Pence ended up casting the deciding vote. So it was 51 to 50 in the Senate for DeVos to be confirmed as the secretary of the Department of Education. And this was a very contentious battle. I talked about the hearing earlier on this show, played some clips from that, Elizabeth Warren and Betsy DeVos's back and forths. And uh, Bernie Sanders also had a couple notable back and forths with her. With her. And it's been amazing, the smear campaign that's gone, that, that's come about regarding DeVos and how she's an enemy of public education and how she's going to gut and defund public education and public education is never going to be the same way that it was before. And to that last charge of public education is not the same as it was before, I think that that's a good thing. And I don't know why so many people are eating up the propaganda from the teachers' unions hook, line, and sinker, but that's exactly what is happening. The teachers' unions love the extra money coming in and flowing. in. It's benefiting the teachers. It hasn't benefited the students, though. We have not seen results uptick with huge influxes of money into the public education system. The system is not working. Now, I talked about in prior episodes about DeVos how I don't think school choice is necessarily this, this magic solution that's going to make everything perfect. But I think anything that moves us further toward freedom and provides some competition for 
the public education system is better than what we have now, which is monopolies by public schools in many locales. In many places, that's really your only choice. Or you have to send your kid far away and pay large sums of money for tuition for them to go to private school while continuing to pay taxes for your local public school. And that's just not viable for most people because local property taxes have continued to go up as the costs of education have gone up, largely due to the extra bureaucracy brought about by the Department of Education itself and due to more federal control over the school. That's a big contributing factor as to why costs have continued to skyrocket and or skyrocket and why administrations have grown in size. That tends to happen when you add bureaucratic levels above a given administration, that administration tends to grow. It happens everywhere, and that's what's happened in schools. And that's been the contributor toward uh, to greatly increased costs. And that's why we haven't seen results from the extra money that's being spent on the issue. I haven't seen a t- single teacher come out and I think have any sort of measured thoughts on this issue. It's been Betsy DeVos is evil. She doesn't know anything about education and we need to do whatever we can to stop her from becoming the secretary of the Department of Education. And I think a lot of it is the propaganda being fed, not just by teachers unions, I said that before, but the um, the departments of education at universities, the you know the teachers colleges or the, the portions of college that are dedicated toward training teachers. You know, a lot of these people have a vested interest as well in keeping things the way they are. The status quo is good for the teachers unions and by extension, many teachers. Now, I've tried to argue in the past that I don't think that what's good for the teachers unions is good for the average teacher. I think it's ultimately bad for the average teacher because oftentimes they reward mediocrity. There aren't the same incentives there to to bring your A game. And the very good teachers out there, which there are many amazing teachers, and I've had many of them, and I know many of them personally, they aren't able to be rewarded to the level that they should be rewarded, that they would be rewarded in a more free market system with more competition. But just this campaign against DeVos was incredible and everybody coming out coming out against her like she is going to completely end public education as we know it also today it's worth noting that thomas massey presented a bill to end the department of education entirely which i think would be a large step in the right direction and the point i want to make is i don't think that the department of education should have anywhere near as much power as it does because it means that no matter which way you go so say that you were to appoint somebody that is completely in favor of the status quo somebody that all these people that are up in arms about DeVos would love then half the people in this country would be unhappy with that because they know that the public education system is not serving them and their children the way it should so that other half of the country would be very upset because they understand how much control that person has just like the half of people that is up in arms against DeVos and DeVos's confirmation, those people understand what she can do because of the power that the Department of Education has. So the response to that, the the solution is to end the Department of Education or at the very least scale back its powers considerably so that it doesn't have the ability to completely change the way that people's kids are educated or the way that the teachers educate because This should be a state-by-state or ideally a locality-by-locality issue. Each state could do it differently. That's how it was envisioned. 
at the beginning of the United States. There was never supposed to be federal control over education in its entirety. There were not supposed to be federal standards or federal money being involved or the, the government in any way, the federal government being able to dictate how states conducted education. So some states, maybe you'd have a pure free market system, probably not. But some states, maybe each locality would have pretty much full autonomy to do things the way that they would like to do it. So if, if one locality wanted to have religion in its schools, they could go for it. If you know, if another one wanted to have a certain sort of curriculum, they'd be able to sort that out themselves. And they'd be able to decide how much they want to be taxed in their locality. Some states would have unilateral, uh, unilateral standards from on high, and they would control everything from the state capital. But that's how things were supposed to be done. That's how the Founding Fathers envisioned it. And I think that's ultimately the best way to conduct education. Because since the Department of Education was created, we've continued to throw more and more money at the issue, and the results have not been there. And the cries are always, oh, well, public education is being defunded. How could we possibly have rising standards or how could we possibly have, have increasing results when, when it's being defunded, when it's being constantly cut? It's not being cut. We're spending more and more money every year on public education and results are at best stagnating, if not getting worse. It depends on the metrics you look at. But our competitiveness around the world in terms of education has gotten continually worse other countries have surpassed us. A lot of that has to do with new countries kind of joining the the group of rich countries uh, that that previously a large percentage of their population was very poor. That that plays a big role in it. But we've fallen behind other countries that have been considered in that rich category all along, that have been similar in terms of standards of living to us for a long time. And throwing more money at the problem has not solved it. So we have to look at how can we do things differently and experiment to get better results for that money. And ultimately it's concerning to me that these teachers can't seem to think for themselves because every single one that I saw, and I went out and I, I read quite a bit. I saw my social media sites and the people that I, that I know personally, and every single one of them that came out and said anything about this issue called DeVos a monster, essentially. Called her a threat to education. There was no measured response, no talking, no talking about, well, you know, things haven't necessarily gotten better. Here are the things that we can improve. I don't know if DeVos is the right person to do it, but maybe we do need to look in the mirror a little bit and how can we change things. There was none of that whatsoever. It was, we need to preserve the status quo. The status quo is great and DeVos threatens the status quo. That's what I saw time and time again. So one other thing I wanted to talk about today was hearkening back to the immigration discussion I had and talking about, you know, basically what my views were on the constitutionality of that executive order and how I thought the response to it was overblown, you know, the, the negative response coming out in, uh, due to that executive order. So two pieces of information that came up that I thought were very interesting and worth discussing on this show. So the first, I'm going to play an audio clip, and this is from a California State Senate member talking about illegal immigration and his family and how half of his family has some sort of false identification. So half his family is in the United States illegally. And the reality is with the executive order and the criteria that has been developed, any individual, I can tell you half of my family, would be eligible for deportation under the executive order because if they got a false social security card, if they got a false identification, if they got a false 
driver's license prior to us passing AB60, if they got a false green card. And anyone who has family members, you know, who are undocumented knows that almost entirely everybody has secured some sort of false identification. That's what you need to survive, to work. They are eligible for massive deportation. So I'll be honest, before hearing that clip, I didn't realize quite how pervasive of an issue, I guess, illegal immigration is. I know in California, that's the epicenter because so many people from Mexico are coming into California and because it's the closest state coming up the coast, then of course there's going to be a higher concentration of illegal immigrants there than there are elsewhere. But for a state senator to say that half of his family is in the United States illegally, First of all, I can't believe you would come out in public and say that. You know, just my view of of immigration, and I went through the whole process because my wife is from Canada, and we had to go through thousands of dollars and months waiting for her to be able to come over on a fiancé visa where we could marry and then she could apply for permanent residency. So she's currently a permanent resident here on a green card. Maybe eventually she'll become a U.S. citizen, but she's not eligible for that yet, hasn't been in the country long enough yet. But even if she was here illegally, I, I cannot imagine going out and saying anything publicly about them being here or, or about her being here illegally. And I can't believe that this senator would be willing to do that. But I wonder what currently happens to people if they have false social security cards or false identification. Uh, are they just given slaps on the wrist and being allowed to stay and being allowed to continue to conduct their business? Because obviously for them to be deported, they would have to be caught for that crime. You know, they'd have to be caught with false identification. So I don't know enough about what the law is out there to know what's happening right now if they are caught or is he just being intentionally overdramatic about it or being, you know, being intentionally, intentionally exaggerating the issue and saying, yeah, half my family has this when, you know, maybe it's somebody in his family, maybe a relative. But I'm going to take his words literally because I have no reason to, to think otherwise. I mean, why would you say it publicly if it wasn't true? Because I could see it opening up your family to just much more surveillance than it would than they would otherwise. So he must think that they aren't really at risk, all right, at too much risk, if he's coming out and saying this on the Senate floor. And this is everywhere now on the, on the California State Senate floor. Uh so I thought this was just incredible, and it does play into the hands of the people that believe that illegal immigration is one of the biggest issues in the United States right now, and that they're coming to the United States and taking our jobs. You know, you've heard all the all the standard vitriol thrown at illegal immigrants and illegal immigration as a whole. You've heard all that, and this just plays right into their hands, and it goes to show them this is probably a bigger issue than a lot of us think. And especially when so many American citizens are being basically weighed down. They have they have a big weight on their back when they go and apply for a job. That weight is payroll taxes, where you have to pay over 12% of what, what the employer is paying toward your salary to the government for payroll taxes. Right off the top, unless you make over $115,000 or so, then you're cut off after that point and upwards from paying payroll taxes. But that's a huge weight that you're carrying on your back and people that are able to work for cash or that are willing to work for cash, they are able to not have that weight on their back. And that's one of the big issues why illegal immigration is, or one of the big reasons why illegal immigration is 
is very enticing for employers and why many employers at least tacitly approve of it because this these are cheaper workers even if they're willing to take the same say $10 an hour that a US immigrant will be willing to pay or that a, that a US citizen will be willing to take for a given job the employer doesn't have to also pay the 6.2% payroll tax on their side and the the employee him or herself can keep more of that or can keep that entire $10 an hour in cash. Whereas the employee, the, the domestic employee, the U S citizen employee doesn't have that luxury. That citizen has to pay taxes. That citizen has to pay their share of the payroll tax. The employer has to pay his or her share of, of the payroll tax. So that's one of the big things I think is, is enticing illegal immigrants to come and causing employers to tacitly approve of of the whole institution uh, so that that would be one thing we could do i think to start to stem the tide of illegal immigration is reduce the burden of payroll taxes and taxes in general really but the more important point i wanted to make on this was that somebody coming out and saying this publicly plays right into the hands of people who believe that this is a big issue and it goes to show that it is a more rational fear than maybe you would think on the face of it because people like me see this and we think, oh, wow, this is actually a bigger issue than I think. You know, I know I know that many people are in the United States illegally. I've, I've talked about I don't think it's as big of an issue as many people make it out to believe. Many people think it's one of the biggest scourges on the United States and on the American worker. I'm, I'm not that extreme whatsoever. I've talked about they do disproportionately drag down uh, welfare systems, both state and federal, but... Um, it's there are far bigger issues than illegal immigration in the United States, but this goes to show that there are probably a lot more people here illegally than estimates currently indicate. If what he's saying is true, and half his family is here, that's probably typical of Mexican Americans then in that entire region. That half of their families are here are are here illegally. Another piece of information that came out that I thought was really interesting, and it's similar. It's not about illegal immigration necessarily, but it's about immigration. And this was a Chatham House uh, poll, survey. What do Europeans think about Muslim immigration is the title of the report that was issued. It just came out a couple days ago. And the, really the results are pretty fascinating. So the release, it talks about kind of the, the political environment and how hospitable have countries been to immigration? What are the prevailing attitudes about immigration? But then it goes into the actual numbers of what people said in response to this survey. So this happened before President Trump's executive order was announced. And respondents were given the following statement. All further migration from mainly Muslim countries should be stopped. They were given to This was given to European countries. This is a European survey. Then they were... They were asked to what extent do they agree or disagree with this statement. So overall, across all 10 of the European countries surveyed, an average of 55% of respondents agreed that all further migration from mainly Muslim countries should be stopped. 25% neither agreed nor disagreed, and 20% disagreed. So both fascinating that 55% of people completely agreed with this statement, said that they agree with this statement, and only 20% disagreed 25% of people were on the fence and i have to think that because in terms of in political politically correct society it's probably frowned upon to say that you that you 
don't want to have Muslim any Muslim immigration whatsoever to your country. So I would guess that probably of those 25% of people that said they were on the fence, probably more of them would be on the agree side. So this was fascinating. I, I could not believe these numbers. So majorities in all but two of the 10 states agreed. So 71% in Poland agreed. That was the highest. There's 65% in Austria, 53% in Germany, 51% in Italy, 47% in the United Kingdom, and 41% in Spain. Um, in, in no country did the percentage that disagreed surpassed 32%. So the highest disagreed rate among any country was 32%. So in the country that was that was most favorable to not stopping Muslim immigration, 68% of people either agreed or did not disagree, were on the fence about this issue at hand. I just could not believe these numbers. And I talked about in that immigration episode how I don't really think that this this view of, of terrorism as being a grave threat to your livelihood and to your liberties is is overly rational. But it goes to show that other countries are thinking the same way about this issue. That it's not like there's something unique about Americans that is making them harbor these types of opinions about Muslim immigration. And nowhere knows this better than Europe, because Europe is, has had Muslim immigration coming to their countries for longer. It's closer geographically. It's easier to get there, easier to move throughout the EU. Um, so they've had exposure to it longer. And I'm not saying that I agree with these positions that are that are being taken, but anybody that's trying to take the position that the U.S. is uniquely racist or fearful or bigoted or any reason for having these types of opinions about Muslim immigration, I think that you were flat out wrong. You should be attacking the entire Western world for these opinions, maybe. But there's nothing unique about the United States. And there's nothing unique about Donald Trump in reflecting the will of the people. You know, if, if you believe in politicians embodying the will of the people, if we assume that these numbers are somewhat translatable to the United States, then what Trump is doing is reflecting the will of the people and at least temporarily stopping immigration from certain countries to try to evaluate what's our vetting process look like. So if you believe in politicians actually representing the will of the people, which I think a lot of the people that are coming out against Trump for this reason, they say, oh, he doesn't represent us. He doesn't represent the United States. I think these these numbers suggest otherwise. These numbers suggest that probably the anti-immigration tide in the United States is more popular than most people would think. And I'm not saying that that's right. And if go back and listen to my whole episode on, on immigration. Like I said, talking about it being irrational, this fear of terrorism being being a reason to, to try to stop immigration from certain countries. I don't, I don't think it's the right policy. I think it's, it could have a lot of blowback impacts and could be used to, to recruit new terrorists or in, in, to recruit people to foment anti-American dissent all around the world. But if you read this, I'm going to link to it on my website. The numbers are just Incredible, and I I never would have guessed they would be this high. So I thought it was something I had to talk about because of, uh, just because of how it floored me. I assume probably it would floor you as well. But anybody going around trying to say that the United States is unique in terms of having a legacy of of 
you know, white supremacy or, or whatever you want to say, ethnic cleansing, anything like that. And that's why we have people saying the things that they're saying and politicians doing the things that they're doing. Majorities all around the Western world th- are thinking the same way. And we can take offense with the whole Western world for thinking that way. But to try to single out the U.S. as being something that's completely different and that we're on a whole other level of hate and everybody everybody, everybody else in these other countries can't imagine how uncivilized the U.S. is for possibly thinking these things about, about Muslim immigration. It's just, it's just not true. And, and these survey results go to prove that, that premise very strongly, something I think most of us knew. Another thing that I wanted to say about this was 47% of people in the United Kingdom agreed with that statement that um, that immigrants from Muslim countries should be stopped or immigrate, basically Muslim immigration should be stopped. And that was the second lowest among all of these countries surveyed. Now, if you go back to Brexit, remember what were people pushing? That, oh, the UK, we are so uniquely anti-immigration and that's the whole reason why why Brexit won and why Brexit left the EU. Well, if anti-immigration, if anti-Muslim immigration was the reason why the UK wanted to leave, if that was the primary reason and that's what was fueling it, then why was the UK the first one to go when all these other countries have stronger opinions against Muslim immigration? They were one of the two one of the two countries out of the 10 surveyed here that did not have a majority that agreed with that statement. So go back and look at your premises on Brexit, your false premises, because that's not what it was about. There were certain people, I'm sure, that that supported Brexit because they were against immigration. Just like I think there were there was a substantial portion of people that supported Donald Trump because primarily primarily what he said about immigration and by proxy Muslim immigration. But I think it's a minority of the supporters of both of those causes. I think Brexit had much more to do with disliking being ruled by something foreign that you really had no control over. Uh, and I think Trump tapped into the same kind of same kind of feelings in many Americans, many people that probably didn't have strong opinions one way or another on immigration, but they didn't like being ruled by by these elites that they felt like they could not relate to and that were not there serving their best interests. The same kind of ideas that happened that, that sparked the whole Brexit movement. And that's why prior to, to the election, I said that I thought Trump would win. Just like Brexit happened, Brexit was an upset, I thought that that's the way that things are moving in that direction, in that more nationalist type of direction. And Trump represents the same sort of thing that Brexit represented the same kind of feelings in populaces. So go and read these results. I, th- I think it is very interesting. No matter what side of this debate you're on, I think the numbers will will surprise you either way. Um, I think that's everything I have to discuss today. I want to thank you for joining me for another episode. Please subscribe. Hoping to have another one out maybe tomorrow or Friday. Definitely at least one over the weekend. So Hopefully have another one or two out by the end of the week. I appreciate you listening. Please go out, subscribe, share this, tell anybody you know. Have a great rest of your week.